Fat Force Radio. Fat Force Radio is rated M for mature. Or should that be immature? Hey guys, Dustin Wynn. Hey, this is Scott Snyder. This is Paul Dini. And you're listening to Bat Force Radio. And you're listening to Bat Force Radio. Listening to Bat Force Radio. This is Kevin Conroy, the voice of Batman. And you're listening to Bat Force Radio, so stay tuned. episode of bat force radio um joining us today is a very special guest but let's go ahead and kind of uh introduce ourselves i'm grandpa batman from dallas texas and joining me is uh robin d cross from the blistery winter canada good evening joining us today is a very special guest like i said his name is russell Beatty from giant panda king and we are here to discuss the book gotham 1919 to 1939 it's always interesting when someone can create an homage or a new version of the batman mythos but do it in a way that seems so original and that's really what this book is about um so joining us today is russell Beatty, giant panda king Thank you very much for joining us. Hello, everyone. I just want to say one thing before we get started to your audience. The reason I'm so close to the screen is just I'm having some audio issues and just to hear everything. Um, I'm leaning really close to my monitor. I'm not trying to do a power move or flex some intimidation <laughs> method. It's just and, I'm getting and older all, and I'm hard of hearing. And we were also <laughs> doing some freaky stuff before we started recording. So. <laughs> That's it. All right. Well. Um, thank you so much. And if you could just kind of give us a, I don't know, backstory about how you got started, you know, and, and what it is Giant Panda King and what it is that, you know, you guys are doing with uh, this publishing. Yeah, well, um, it's a big question, but I'll, uh, I'll try my best. I, so when I was young, my main passion was films. And then, you know, looking back, it's more storytelling and whatnot. And storytelling is just such a fundamental part of humanity. Um, and I find we're getting lost a bit like that these days um, with storytelling. Like it's more driven by algorithms rather than humans, which we've always kind of had that organic experience. So the more I train to enter the film industry or the entertainment industry or um, how you want to see it, um, the more I was fell out of love with it, so to speak. So I, um, I didn't like all the, the, the magic was gone and it wasn't because, you know, you see how the sausage gets made kind of situation. I mean, like the values of what I thought were storytelling in the entertainment industry and, you know, that kind of stuff, they weren't shared by the industry. And I realized very young that, um, I didn't want to work in the industry, but I still wanted to make content. You know, well, I, 
I just said content. Those who have ever seen me in an interview or everything, I say content's an uh, evil word for me, um, <laughs> just because I, I, I want to make stuff what lasts a little bit longer. Um, but essentially, all these ideas and these feelings were kind of um, were going through at the time. And I was still trying to, you know, break the industry. I was young and still held out hope that, you know, someone's going to offer to give me a chance to make a big movie or something like that. Um, but yeah, and I just, I kind of left the industry and started working in like, um, uh, the burlesque scene in the UK when I went over there and that was the magic I was kind of looking for, what the industry didn't give me. And that magic, I knew what I wanted because I grew up with my friends making films. I grew up, I went and studied at like, you know, uh, film school and everything. So when you had that freedom to do what you want and no pressure on like trying to sell it or anything and took that commercial element away. Um, that was where the magic was for me. We could just experiment. And uh, yeah, I still, for the next little while, dab my toe in the industry every so often, just kind of like, you know, like an abuse victim, just keep going back because I thought it would treat me differently, but it, uh, it just got worse. And then, so um, I'm cutting out a few steps here, but essentially I started doing live stuff more because I was so immediate, you know, and you had to do everything. So I was like, the costume designer, I was the director, producer, production manager, like casting, even when I had to, I had to perform. And it was so immediate. If you didn't have it on the night, you just had to go on anyway. Because, mm -hmm. you know, that old maxim of show must go on. It's right. true, must. So you kind of start developing some principles and ethics and all that built around how you work. Um, and I was just like, why can't I bring this to the thing I mainly love, which is like film, you know? and storytelling a bit more because like i love doing live stuff but it's one of those things you have to be there you know you it's not it never translate good live entertainment doesn't translate to other mediums only bad live entertainment does um so <clears throat> the magic you experience there every everything's got its own unique kind of uh, yeah I, I keep using magic but that's that's what i like saying like jim hansen was magic buster keaton was magic you know like those guys yeah brought their own they, they are the magicians but their format instead of the stage and tricks and illusions was celluloid and so for me that was a big part of it um was just i wanted to be those guys like you know your long chainies and you know where they did everything you know it didn't go back to the 70s and stuff like your russ myers your um john carpenters your, you know all those um roger corman's you know not everything they made was great but you could see that they made it you know, it was authentic. There, were, there was a fingerprint on everything they made. Um, right. And for me, I just wanted that kind of freedom. So I had a record label. I owned a music venue um, for a number of years. I manage bands. I uh, do, I've done every kind of show you could have properly imagine. Basically, my bread and butter was burlesque. Um, I put a show together which kind of took off. Uh, it tours the world still now i just finished my last australian tour last night so i've had about an hour and a half sleep since <laughs> i finished there um i got to bed about 4 30 this morning and i was up at uh i don't know but anyway it's um it, and that was that show itself is a way i could combine my passions my fandom with a commercial like format right and then i could see okay this is what it's like when Jim Hansen started the creature shop. This is what, you know, so that's the stuff I'm more interested in building that thing. I never wanted to go big. When you go big, you lose control. And that's not what I want to lose. Um, I have a very small team and we make 
products the way we want it. We're not driven by money or anything like that. Like don't go. We like money because it allows us to make what we want to make. But um, I'll never. Yeah, we'll, like there's a reason we're not on Amazon. There's a reason we're not. Um, you know everywhere and like we we're not very good at social media it's not our thing <laughs> um you know we've sold more books than we have fans on instagram <laughs> so <laughs> you know i don't know how that math works but it's working but essentially um about four years ago i decided to clean my slate and just move forward i just want really clean things like you know my um you know my time in the desert is done you know, I'm now back and I'm ready to kind of go into the next thing. So we created Giant Panda King and we got really focused on what we want to put out. And I had, a, and I have about, always about 50 projects going at one time. Now, and they're not all active, don't get me wrong. That sounds like a weird flex, but it's, um, they're not, like the Batman book we shot over 10 years. Wow. So I'd go back every couple of years and shoot a bit more. So those models in the Batman book, for example, the Gotham, they uh -huh. age naturally through that time period. So if you look at the Robins, you know, for example, uh -huh. each Robin in there is the first time they're in the book, they're 12, the next time they're 21. Wow. <laughs> you know, so I have Dick as Robin coming back to play him as Nightwing, the same kid as wow. he grew up. okay. And yeah. then you see Dion, our Batman, and he ages through the book as well, you know? Yeah, like I saw uh, you, have a, you have a Dark Knight Returns in there, so... Yeah, I couldn't age him that much. <laughs> um, yeah. No, we every other photo is the one guy, and he just ages because we did it over a ten-year period. Um, and that was I, part I, of I was just, was I was just going to say, wow, you've been taking these photos for forty years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, you can hide behind the aesthetic. So, yeah, but uh, yeah, essentially, Giant Panda King was created to just put out content when I wanted to, the way I wanted to, and not have pressure of outside you know, forces. Um, and yeah, we just want to create stuff what, you know, you get off the bookshelf in 10 years and you can still get something out of it. And I guarantee everyone, no one's found all the Easter eggs in the book yet or anything like that. You could look at it for ages and still try and find stuff. But the main thing for us is to make high-end products, um, books, films, you know, podcasts, whatever, whatever we want to do. Um, and essentially, um, yeah, we're going to be doing that for probably the next 18 months with books. And then I'm shutting the publishing side down of the company. Um, I'll be sending over the, uh, my um, stage show, my burlesque stage show. The, I don't know if I mentioned the name. I can't remember. It's called The Empire Strips Back. It's a big Star Wars themed burlesque show. What, um, I'd say it's probably one or like in the top biggest kind of burlesque shows in the world like as far as um the scale of how what we tour you know like we've got full-size uh replicas of jabba the hut and um land speeders and tontons what you know are rideable and all that stuff in it so i am we're doing this yeah if anyone looks at it, it's just the empire strips back uh make sure it's you look up my version a lot of people have stolen my name and done smaller versions um which power to them I don't own. I don't own any of these uh, concepts. They're all part of the um, super fandom, where we just, you know, all add our own little take, take to it. Um, but yeah, essentially, it was just that. Um, and then eighteen more months of like kind of working with other people's products and IP, and then we're pretty much going all original content after that. Which some people kind of, uh, when I mention that online, they freak out. They go, oh, we're going to miss all that stuff. I'm like, yeah, you're still going to get plenty of Batman content and Spider-Man content and 
or that from the big studios. We just want to give you something new. You know, we don't, we want to be the next kind of Marvel. We want to be the next this, you know, I'm, I love nostalgia. I think it's great, but I think nostalgia is a potent drug, what we're all addicted to when it comes to our fandom and storytelling. Um, and yeah, seeing Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield in a film, you know, and tying that film legacy, that's amazing. But that's when it's done well. I'm worried about the next couple of years when, you know, the studios try and grab in. Because we all remember how it ended up when everyone tried to copy the MCU, you know, right. um, originally and tried to do, forced all these shared universes. So we're just very conscious of, like, how fandom can turn the current so quickly. So we always try and just be authentic to what we're trying to do. You know, we're just trying to focus on making one thing at a time, um, as a, you know, and do it well, essentially, and take the time to do it. Right. I don't know if that was the answer. Is that what you No, I, I totally get it because, you know, you want to take the fans and your audience with you on the journey. You know, for example, like, like you said, nostalgia can be a, a slippery slope. Um, like for musicians, for example, like maybe they're in a big, you know, rock and roll band and then they decide to go solo well you're always going to have those fans that come to the concerts and they only want to hear the songs that they know from you know the big big band days but if all that you do is sing those old songs then you're never going to build a new audience for what you know or what that musician that solo artist is trying to do moving forward and they get stuck so i i know um for example, you know, I just, I'm a big fan of the band Oasis and Noel Gallagher went solo and his brothers, Liam went solo and at their shows, yes, they play some of the old stuff, but they, they push their fans to accept the new stuff that they're working on. Because if all they want to come is hear Wonderwall, then just turn on the radio, mm. but you got to take them with you moving forward. Otherwise, you know, you're going, you're going to be stuck and you're not going to have a future. So I, I totally respect and, and get where you're going with the future of uh, your business and Panda King, giant Panda King. Um, but everyone get it's funny because everyone I say they get upset. I'm like, guys, I've still got like four more books coming out. <laughs> yeah. And, and my books aren't small. They're, that's a lot of content. This I is a lot of content. Book, yeah. um, let's, let's kind of get into that because the, the one thing about Gotham 1919 to 1939. I love the concept because it's it comes like it's an actual collection of historical data. It pretty much the way I saw it is it's almost like presenting Gotham, even though we know it's fiction, but it's presenting it as a historical place. And these are the events that going up to 1939 could have inspired um, Bob Kane and Bill Finger to create the comics that went forward and followed, you know, that we read today. So, you know, I, I love the time period that you chose to build this, this world in and present. Um, so let's bring up the photo. Here we are. Here's the cover. Gotham, 1919 to 1939, an unauthorized detailed account of Gotham. I mean, just that front cover right there with Joker is enough to sell me and 
could you give us a little information about this um, person that portrayed Joker? Yeah, that's uh, that's Anthony. I've known Anthony, oh, probably since I was eighteen, so quite a long time. And um, he just had an interesting look. The first time I met him, he was like, "Is you could almost see through him. He's so skinny." And but he he has this physicality about him, what you know, and he can portray a strong character, even though he he's so skinny and you know, and he's such a um, gentle person, but he can turn it on, become one of the most intimidating looking people you could ever meet, you know, and feel like look scary. And um, he plays the Joker, but he also plays like I think five other roles in the book. So he's also Man Bat. He's also Mister Freeze um okay i think he's dead sh like one of the um stand-ins for a dead shot maybe i can't remember but yeah anthony's like one of my go-to guys so he um he's been a number one of my stage productions but he's also um because we just re we just finished we're just finishing up our first feature film um what we shot uh during covid and he's my um he's my kind of creature monster in that you know, so his physicality is incredible. And I always thought he'd be the perfect Joker for years because he can actually, he has one of the best Joker voices and laughs. And it's a shame that's in the book form because he does it so good. And he's kind of the closest thing to kind of Hamill's um, Joker, but in real life. Right. Um, he has a bit more of a a uh, creepiness to him than I suppose the um, Hamill's Joker. Like it's a little bit more broken um uh when he says stuff but yeah he's he's amazing and it's a shame because you know someone like that will never be cast as the joker in films at this stage um you know and that's a shame because that's that's what we're after yeah and that's i mean what I, I want to see i want to see a, a comic accurate kind of joker based on the context of you know when we've set the books obviously in the um between the two world wars but um yeah he's just meant to feel um as intimidating as all those, you know, deep dive um, vintage photos kind of thing uh, where, you know, people bring up online and whatnot. But he's a combination of like, um, and I always say my version of the Joker is a combination of Salvador Dali and John Dillinger. Mm. And Anthony kind of, he, he definitely brings that alive. An artistic gangster. I, I like that. And uh, that, that well, cover just, image, uh, that perfectly sums up, it, it's just perfect evidence of how perfectly this, the, the look that you're going here, this sort of noir look, uh, how well this, the aesthetic, that's the word that I was trying to find there, how well the aesthetic that you're uh, using here fits with the Batman and Gotham mythos, that it, it it works so well with the subject matter. Yeah, well, that's when we um were coming up. When I was coming up with it, I knew a lot of that period of because uh, I was always fascinated by that period. It's I find that that period is when we that's when it really changed. Um, mm -hmm. Where we went from being of the old world into the new world. You know, um, between the two world wars um, was when we had a massive, massive change. And then after World War II, we kind of, you know, we, we settled into what the modern world kind of is now. Um, but yeah, this is, I was just going, what would make sense in history? You know, where would Batman make the most sense? Like these days, it's kind of silly when you see skyscrapers that big, him being on top. 
you know, and like looking down. Like I love the Nolan films, but I always thought it was so stupid when he was standing on top of the church because he was so <laughs> oh, was it the church? But that point of building, he's just standing on top of it. I'm like he's so high up, how's he gonna get down? Like how's he gonna see the crime happening on the street? <laughs> yeah, that, that like, that's he, always been like that. Ants. And then that. like this thing is he was so high, and there's they showed this skyline. There's nothing for him to shoot to or anything. And like for me, if that was in like Snyder's film, I'd be like, fine, that's the rules they're playing by because that's a lot more, you know, a lot more far fetched. But like Nolan's was all based in reality, you know, that was the whole point of it, it was grounded. And um, that one just looked so silly to me because I was like, how does he get down? Um, but then <laughs> it's, it's the kind know, of thing that my, we just have to suspend version, that. Like, what makes sense for my reality, you know? Yeah. And around that time, most apartment apartments and buildings were only like five six stories you know um a lot more alleyways a lot more slums um you know things like that and i started thinking how does he work in this world like what makes him different well he doesn't have like he might have a radio but how does he power the radio because you know all that kind of stuff and then we're like okay well you know the way he communicates well a light makes sense you know a beacon at that time makes sense but a bat signal now, apart from it being used as a symbol to put, you know, fear into villains, you know, and criminals. Now, just text him. <laughs> like, so for me, to justify a lot of the equipment he uses and everything, I had to put it into a period where it originally made sense. Right. And that's why, you know, like Gordon in the book, we show a searchlight and in Australia, that was very hard to come by to find a period accurate searchlight. There was only three of them in Australia, um, what I could find to shoot with. But that is a 1938 uh, searchlight, I believe, what we use in there. Um, but the yeah, but the whole point is just making it feel grounded and have context. And if we want to feel real, we had to pick a period where technology um, was fast fast developing that he could have access to the stuff we love about him um but also make it grounded like you know like batterings for example i think are the most <clears throat> when he, they way they portrayed in films and whatnot i think they're so silly um the reason he it was called the battering originally because he had one of them and it came back to him you know yeah. like it, it was you know it was a proper boomerang in the shape of a bat um and it was a throwing weapon yeah so you, you sup on the screen there um, you see that, like, here we've gone, okay, so for ours, we, we're going to make it because throwing, how many batterings are you going to have to carry on you to make it practical, you know? <laughs> so instead, we made it a bigger weapon, you know? We made it something you could actually use um, into hand-to-hand combat, so it's actually a knuckle duster. Mm. And that's why you see, like, the Robins using that. And then, you know, we also put a blade on the end of it and then also a climbing tool on the other side of it. So it has a multi-use weapon. It's like a Swiss army knife and he would, has one of them rather than, you know, 50. Um, well, and then if, our, if you ever played uh, the video games, he has about <laughs> 5 million in his pocket. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Which is fine in a video game because that's yeah. the context of the world. But for us, we had to make it seem more real. So our grappling gun, for example, that doesn't lift him up because that, power of that technology is kind of only like if you've seen a youtube channels where they've tried to actually make it uh, or mythbusters it's not so simple you know <laughs> so what we've used is that he would more use it for scaling to slow his descent down rather than 
to like fly mm. up out of nowhere and whatnot. So we just have to kind of say, what is our Batman's world and what are the rules of that world? And the 1920s to the 1930s just made so much sense to us. Also from a p political point of view and the social aspect of America where you had the public enemies period as well, where all the gangsters were portrayed as celebrities anyway, like right. John Dillinger, Babyface Nelson, Pretty Boy Floyd. Um, those guys were all larger than life, you know, and I was like, they are, you know, comic book characters, Bonnie and Clyde, Harley and Joker, you know, like there are these like real life counterparts to all these comic book characters, you know, and that's what I say um, in a lot of interviews is that everyone in the book has a real life counterpart I base them on, you know. Um, but yeah, that, that period just made so much sense to me. So that's why we chose it. And then the more I looked in, like the more I researched it and everything, the more it just kind of locked in and it just felt right. And we just kind of ro rolled with it. I love that. Um, you know, this, this book is not just, Hey, let's dress up some people from this era. It's actually a story and it starts from the very beginning. You've titled it the rise of the bat. And it goes throughout Batman's career. And you can see, I mean, there's a lot of content. And another thing is that you took, you know, information and stories from comics, movies, even the animated series, and perfectly blended them all into this compilation. That's every story has to have a beginning, middle, and end. And uh, that's what makes a good story. Comics don't. They just keep <laughs> keep it going. They just keep going. Yeah. And for me, it was important to acknowledge all the great Batman stories I love and go, how does that work? You know, I'm going to have to edit some stuff out, obviously, um, from, you know, I can't have everything in there. But I can have enough to make everyone realize that that exists in this world. You know, mm -hmm. like for me, I'm not a major fan of Court of Owls. Like, I think it's okay. It's just not mine. It's not my bag. Um, it was okay. But everyone wanted Court of Owls in there. And I'm like, I want to see Court of Owls. I want to see Talon. And a lot, of, a lot of guys buying it, they grew up on Court of Owls. So it's just as important to them as, say, Kingdom Come was to me, you know, when I was reading that. But if I did it, I had to do it a little bit differently. I couldn't just do Court of Owls. So, um yeah and a lot of people don't like this because they're like oh keep keep it out of batman and all that you know like when i talk about racism of the time and the political situation all that i'm like dude like crack open a history book and that's what i say this is a history book with batman it's not a batman with history right okay so i change the batman characters to fit into history i don't change history to fit the batman characters well i mean as i read through this i was like that would make sense. You know, that's exactly how secret societies would be established and what their ultimate end game would be. And that's really what the Court of Owls is. And you also get into the false faces. And well, the false face, the courts are so similar when you kind of look at them on paper. Right. So, and like, you know, like Hush and Black Mask is kind of similar backstories if you really break them down like wealthy families connected to the wayne blah 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 blah, blah. um and for me i was just trying to find some point of difference because when you read comics it doesn't make it doesn't matter because you know they're individual stories broken up by sometimes years you know some of these characters have like decades before they 
pop back into the comics. But for me, in the book, they're only a couple of pages apart. So we need to make sure that the stories all feel unique and they all feel genuine. Um, Hush, I, I have to admit, Hush was one of the ones I did struggle with because, you know, he's, he's a great character, but you need time with that character. And I was trying to make him jump out on paper and, like, it is tricky because, like, why is he wearing the bandages? <laughs> I'm trying to aesthetically do it, but I'm like, you know how much time it must take to put that shit on every time? <laughs> you know, so I, I kept it comic accurate, that look, but it kind of killed me a little bit because it just didn't seem practical. Um, and, like, I get that look when it's dark, man. <laughs> you know, he's got a yeah, dark face. Man. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but, you know, we did it because there is sometimes I just go, you know what? We'll do it the fan fan way. But, um, you know, but then there's other times where Clayface, we kind of, you know, we stuck to um, what we thought was right, which was making him a burnt victim. And then um, a super obese burnt victim whose um, who's skin was so, like, soft and malleable. But it wasn't, he couldn't, he didn't have his powers. Or He's more based on the original Clayface. So. I like the story that you wrote for, how Harvey Dent was disfigured. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that story, a lot of people get, um, who've seen something like the Broadway empire will kind of know a character called Richard Harrow, who had a very similar kind of aesthetic. I started working on this before Broadway empire, <laughs> um, but essentially, um, of the time, uh, these men were called the tin men. Because I'd wear these tin faces over there. They, they had these tin prosthetics over their disfigurement. Because this was the first time in World War One where shrapnel was used to such a degree to rip mm. people apart. Like you always had like cannon fire and all that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. and like you know would create splinters. But these were grenades and missiles and you know things like that when they were using in mines and all sorts of nastiness um, in World War One. It was weapons we'd never used before. Um, yeah. in a major war and we just threw everything at each other and see what worked and it was like horrific so you'd have all these guys come back with disfigurements and we didn't have this medical skills to you know heal them properly or treat them properly so that would be horrible horrible um disfigurements and uh, the best what they could do was create like a cover for it right and for me harvey dent i like the character and i the relationship of bruce and Harvey, what makes it's their the dynamic between Batman and Two Face so done, you know, so interesting for me. And I gave them a really strong history with each other. They're best friends. And then when Bruce takes up this like ambition to become Batman, and Harvey Dent has this ambition to eventually become the mayor of Gotham, he thought Bruce just thought, yeah, when I'm this guy protecting him there. Harvey's in the office. I can trust him. Da 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 da. They had these plans. What young guys have when they're in college together, you know. And like he never let in my book. He never let Harvey know he's going to become a symbol of something and protect the city. But he um, he thought one day this is going to happen. And Harvey, in the back of his head, also thought, you know, being best friends with the you know royalty of Gotham will help my advancement, and it did. Right. So you know, Harvey was on track to be. He was the youngest district attorney in history of Gotham in the book. Um, and then he thought a fast way to kind of keep his career going in the right direction was um, joining up to World War One and coming back a war hero. And he reckons he would have been, you know, uh, the mayor of Gotham before he was 30. You know, that was his ambition. 
but it all came to a um, an end when he took his shrapnel. Um, and he lost everything. He lost his career. He lost his friend because his best friend was missing in action, which was Bruce. He's a, uh, his fiance left him because of his disfigurement and he was forced to do the one thing he didn't want to. He had to move back home with his father. And losing all that kind of messed with his, his post-traumatic stress and mixed with his, uh, you know, early bipolar and, um, you know, multiple personality disorder. But, you know, back then they wouldn't have been able to just uh, diagnose that. And it just grew over the next few years until it festered. And then he realized that you'd take off the tin mask and become Two-Face. But it was done over years. It wasn't an overnight thing. Right. Because Bruce comes back eventually and kind of he's Batman and he neglects his friend. And that's something Bruce has to live with that he created Two-Face as much as he created all the other villains in Gotham. Now, who did like your, um, you know, special effects and prosthetics and yeah. Yeah. So we design all of it, but I like in the sense of like, we work out how we're going to do it and everything. So we do that in house. And then depending on whether, uh, what scale it's going to be, I have about three companies I work with. Um, so this particular one, the, so the main guy who did most of the book is a guy called, uh, Bloodhound FX, uh, Stuart there. Mm-hmm. Then you've got another one who was, um, Dave, uh, SFX, who did a few things really early on and they, they hold up really nice. And then, um, these, this one here is done by odd studios. Now odd studios is very high end. They, uh, they just happen to be friends of mine. So they, they help me out when they can. Um, but they won the Oscar, uh, a few years ago for makeup effects on Mad Max Fury Road. Um, they have also, they're also, uh, done like the last Aliens film, um, the last Pirates of the Caribbean, um, look them up. I, I made their show reel, so it looks awesome, <laughs> but they're, um, mm-hmm. they're, they're amazing. They're one of the best in the world as far as they're just really nice guys, very sweet and humble guys but there's some of the best makeup effects artists in the world. And you can Google odd studios and, you know, the internet will back me up on that one. Their work is incredible. Give them a follow because you really dig their stuff. But unfortunately, because they're like some of the biggest in the world, like, like they were the main makeup effects guys on Thor, Love and Thunder, Thunder, because that shot down here. So the new Thor movie, they mm-hmm. did all the creature effect designs and they were okay. all the, they were in the makeup department and special effects department. Um, like as far as, you know, creature effects and everything, they didn't do the beauty stuff, obviously, but they, um, they're, they're amazing. And they're just super humble guys. Mm-hmm. I don't know if anyone knows, um, remembers that show Farscape mm-hmm. back in the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was made with the Hanson company and they made that in Australia. And that's where all the odd studios kind of came out of that, all the guys who worked on that. And if anyone remembers how amazing those special effects were for a 90s TV show, um, like the practical effects and the character designs, um, they came out of there and odd studios was kind of born out of the um, the makeup department in the Farscape. Cool. And then you also have um, people that worked with you for like prop designs. I mean, here's two faces coins. Although that one's a pretty, Pretty easy one to do. Um, but who made like your battering well, and uh, yeah, so I uh, this stuff, yeah, I, I mean, like, that's all this stuff I made or you know, created. Um, 
but it just depends on what what it is. If I've got the skill set to do it, I'll make it. If not, I'll engage the right person to. I've got a pretty cool uh, network of um, creative people we work with, um, and they love working on our stuff because it's fun and uh, it's a little bit different. And um, the biggest thing, if you want to work with creative people and you want to engage them, and if there's the more busier they are, the best thing you can do is just have a very clear idea of what you want. You know, you might not know the specifics, but just you have to kind of know what you want. And most people, when they deal with creatives, um, they just know what they don't want. And that's really hard because you present them stuff and they're like, no, don't like that. Uh, don't like that. Uh, don't like that. Yeah. It always helps if you have a clear idea of what you want. And uh, I suppose that's the biggest thing I'm known for is that, I know what I want almost immediately and I'm very direct and I know exactly what to tell you. And I'm always open to be surprised by stuff, but um, I'm pretty clear cut in what we're trying to achieve. And when you're trying to make this like these giant projects for very little money, because we made this on a shoestring budget because, you know, I fund all this stuff, you know, and drink like, um, um, and like, you know, we sell it, it's a pretty expensive book, but you know, you can feel no one complains when they get the actual book. They always complain when they see the price saying hundred dollars or $90 or in a, for Americans, I think it's $72, but in Australia it's a hundred, but, um, uh, yeah, $72 for Americans. And I go, yeah, but guys, like <laughs> it cost me so much more than that to actually make. So, um, right. you know, everyone who gets the book sees the quality in it. Um, but well, you know, definitely. I mean, I'm engaging some of the best makeup artists in the world. It's not a cheap book. You know, right. they help me out, but I still have to pay them. So. Right. For the audio listeners that are listening on um, like SoundCloud or, or iTunes, right now we're looking at a recreation of the Batman utility belt. You can also go to YouTube and, and watch this interview there. Um, but this utility belt, I, I, you know, breaking this down, it has all the things that, Batman would need to be a you know a detective. He's got a magnifying glass. Um, he's got a dusting brush for fingerprints. I even like the uh, mini bifocals. All those smoke screen chemicals. Uh, looks like he's got um, razors to kind of. Before you also ask, some people have asked me, "That's not all going to fit in there." It all fits in. I made it <laughs> fit in practically before I shot it. I didn't want to present anything that wouldn't fit in the, all that. So it does all fit in there. I made and, it work. And do you just right. wear it around all the time now? <laughs> That's the only thing I wear. Absolutely. <laughs> so I'm wearing, just so you guys know, I'm wearing that at the moment and this T-shirt. And that's it. I'm winning the pooing at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't expect anything else. Um, there is one thing what, um, what in my idea... Like there is one thing missing from that. Um, so he also has this like portable little um, fold out. Um, Cause you guys only see, like I designed so much more for the books, but I can only put so much in the books. So like, if I could tell the full story, it'd be like a 500 page book, but I can't because people are already complaining how expensive it is. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, there's enough content in my head to fill up. 500 page book but i have to work all that out for it to make sense for me then i know what i can put in there what i need for the audience but the thing missing is he has his like little fold out um speaker and um not speaker like a microphone and like um 
listening device. And basically, he has all these points around the city hidden like um, switchboard. So mm -hmm. in the book, you'll see Oracle, and she's at a switchboard, like an old-fashioned like switchboard. So right. Batman and Robin and all the different Bat people. He's got microphones family, set up to kind um, of spy communicate on through their own uh, telephone line which has hidden little, like the old police boxes. I don't know if you guys know much about the police boxes, but obviously they'll have these phones all over the city for police to uh, use to ring the base and report things, you know? So Batman has his own network of that all throughout Gotham, and they just carry their own little fold-out to see what they plug into a wall socket, and they'll connect them to their own switchboard. I love it. Now we're looking at uh, the first incarnation the, of the bat suit, uh, Abed version, apparently. <laughs> the uh, everyone yeah. says that online. I'm like, it's because he's got like those lips. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is the first version, and people right. go. Some people go, he looks goofy, and I'm like, dude, history is fucking goofy. <laughs> like, yeah. like these guys aren't meant to look cool. They're meant to look accurate, you know. And uh, when we we're designing his first look. We based it on like what firefighters wore at the time for protection. And mm -hmm. they wore leather, molded leather. So leather, um, everything was made out of leather. All protection stuff was made of leather, like uh, college football players and all that. All, they were called leather heads because all their armor was made out of leather. You mm -hmm. know? So padded leather was what you used for protection at the period. So when he first starts, he has this leather look, which is very based on the original version of um, his appearance, which has more of the triangle right. look. Yeah. And that's what we try to emulate here. And this was created by a guy called Bob Bassett in uh, uh, Eastern European country. I forget, but he, um, it was very expensive, but I, I designed this up and I sent it off to him and um, he did a great job. Although he did post it, on his socials before I got it and kind of wrecked <laughs> my reveal. But anyway, that's, oh. <laughs> that's the point. Damn um, it. We, um, but he did a great job creating what we wanted to do with that. And you'll notice that I don't do black under my eyes and I don't do a white out eye. It just doesn't make sense for our world, you know? Yeah. Um, and I wanted something where he could get in really quickly, not something like, Again, with the movies, all that stuff makes sense for that. That's fine. They don't need to show that. But in my head, I'm like, how does he get dressed? Because those suits they wear in the movies, I've worked on film sets, and they, they take about 45 minutes to get on those costumes, mm -hmm. and they'll take about three or four people to put them on you. And that's great. But I'm trying to ground mine even more. So I made it so it was a mask. You just pull up, and it's got some strings at the back where you pull, and it tightens all up here. And then it's a t-shirt, pants, trunks, boots, the belt, and the leather cape that does appear. That's it. You can put it on, and we have in three minutes' time. Wow. So and especially just the I, things we look at. and make. If it makes sense to us, it makes sense in the book, then it makes sense to everyone else. Right. And, you know, Bruce Wayne is, is known for being at, like, you know, social events, and bad guy comes in, and he's got to get in suit in action really quick. So he doesn't have time to sit there in front of a mirror and black his eyes out and take mm -hmm. 45 minutes to put on all the, all the armor and stuff. Yeah. And like, and like when, when Gordon turns on the signal, there's the difference between the time that he would expect Batman to show up because something serious is happening and he's not going to expect it 
expect to take it as long as he ordered a pizza and he's waiting for the pizza <laughs> to show up. Yeah. So in one of the designs I did was like he has different suits stationed all over the city. Oh. In like That's lockers genius. and things like that, like train terminals, things like that where you can go and boom. But you also got to remember he plays matches Malone a lot <clears throat> in my world. Oh, yeah. um, I only mention it once in the book, but mm-hmm. he's a freaking celebrity. He's one of the most powerful men in the country, you know? Right. Um, <clears throat> like, I don't want to go too much into the, uh, I, are you guys aware that I've got sequel? You must, uh, I've got sequel books coming out to this. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. But the, um, but yeah, he, he has a massive rivalry, business rivalry with Lex Luthor. Um, yeah. in my world but like those guys are on the papers almost every other day you know like uh, Bruce Wayne for me is based on Howard Hughes so you can see like um, you can see how he would be treated in reality by studying how Howard Hughes was treated by the media and things like that Right. and at the end of the day I kind of see Bruce Wayne having slightly a mental illness himself you know that's mm-hmm. one of those mental illness what makes him amazing at, it makes him driven and whatnot um and you know we're in the modern age now saying mental illness is not a bad thing necessarily it's just people are wired differently and the thing where he's wired that he was gonna become a vigilante and dresses up as a bat is not a normal thing yeah so you want to kind of reflect that and how does that deteriorate as he gets older and you know he if anyone wants to know he has a very similar ending to howard hughes where he he loses his mind to dementia and phobias and you know those sins of his past come back to haunt him he's broken physically he pushed his body to the limit you can't do that like me i i've been on you know touring bands and burlesque shows and other theater productions and rock shows and all that for the last 15 20 years trust me my body is done <laughs> you know like <laughs> so he would be 10 times worse so i want that's the stuff i find interesting you know like he still pushes himself Right. And like, I really want to show his age in that Dark Knight Returns photo. You know? Let me pull that up. Yeah, and you can see it there. You can see the hurt. But he still has that physicality about him. But like, every, his skin's softer and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. But, um, oh. And also, that, that I want to reflect, the mask I want to reflect, all the masks I want to reflect something. And that one, was meant to look like an old leather boxing, like an old leather kind of um, punching bag. That's what I wanted that mask to reflect, you know. And we go in the trench coat there because it's more of a noir thing, being in the 50s, and it made sense a little bit more. And then, yeah, I wanted a super accurate Kerry Kelly. For me Thank you. I've never seen her done the way I'd want it. And it took me a bit to cast the right girl for her, but we got her. Thank you very much. And I love that, um, you know, the whole book goes through the story, and then you add this at the very end in the epilogue. Oh, the epilogues are the most fun for me. <laughs> yeah. I don't have to. I don't have to make it make a ton of sense. I just have to make it a little bit of sense because I don't talk about anything too much. So <laughs> I can just put a random photo in there of the Justice League and let you guys figure it out. Right. Well, there you go. You set it up for uh, your sequels, like you talked about. Um, other things that you added. I love these. You added. You know, not just focusing on Batman, but also his allies. Obviously, you got to have Alfred. Um, who is this distinguished gentleman? The performer? Mm-hmm. 
No, um, I think I think he's still alive because I shot this over a ten year period. A lot of the a lot of the older gentlemen aren't longer with us, unfortunately. Um, but he's I still think he's kicking along. Um, I better check in on him actually. Um, he just had this great look to him, like he looked like he'd seen shit. You know, like he'd been <laughs> to war. He's an older man. He never thought he'd be looking after a grown grown man still in the, you know in his kind of late seventies, early eighties. Um, did but you put he, out a casting call, who, or or how how did you find these people? Oh man, I the way I cast is super weird. Like I'll go down rabbit holes online, finding trying to find people. But I find a lot of the time, if you want these kind of guys, you have to go like this guy in particular. He was actually he's actually um, a performer and actor, so he was a little bit easier to find. He had channels out there where I could find him, and he just had a great look, and I knew uh, I knew I wanted him. But I, I collect these people over years, and I I save them in folders, and some of them you know um, I lose along the way the contact information and whatnot. But generally speaking, I I have an eye for um, finding really interesting talent. Um, that's one of the things I think I'm very good at. If I had to specialize and if it wasn't creative, it would be casting, you know, um, because I know, I know the right people for the right thing. Um, and he was, he has a great look. Um, but like, sometimes I just go to like, go get up early and go to like the fruit market or the fish market or something like that. Cause people who have to get up at 4am every morning or 3am to work, you know, six days a week and do hard labor work like that. They have faces what represent people from that period, you know, character faces, you know, and that, that's the thing. You want real people. You want authentic faces. And to get authentic faces, you have to get people to have an authentic job, you know, yeah. have an authentic life, Thought not influences. Yeah. <laughs> this guy, uh, Lucius Fox, that this man that portrays him. Yeah, uh, well, he, he's very representative of, like, perfect that period of um, – the look of African-Americans that period, like as far as um, what they were presenting in media uh, or putting on the stage, whatever, there was a type of African-American which was acceptable in um, business and things like that, you know, um, at that period, you know. Uh, and we wanted to make sure that this book doesn't shy away from that period's negative aspects like racism and things like that and how they presented it. And Lucius is our kind of like our um he's he's so linked to all that because at that time like right now making him the guy who kind of you know publicly runs wayne enterprises now is not an issue you can have morgan freeman playing him in nolan films that's fine but having an african-american man running one of the biggest companies in america in the 1930s and late 20s that's when we start saying well the like the <clears throat> Um, period would not have that, you know? Um, and that's when it starts becoming unauthentic. But then if you make that part of the story and actually have repercussions because of that, like a lot of these, like the Court of Owls and the False Face Society target Lucius, you know? So it's not just Batman all the time right. um, at the centre of all this stuff. It's his people as well, you know? Right. And like you know, Lucius is aware of it, so he also does it with um, his son as well, Luke. And then we have uh, here's Gordon. Mm -hmm. So I used, the thing about this guy, I used to work security. Uh, I still do occasionally if I need to make money, like to redo the 
the reprints and to pay for everything for the reprints, like for the what we when we um, did all the pre-orders and situation. Because um, the money came in, but like it's good money, but you know it's a very expensive book to print everything because I do small runs, so I have to still earn money to make things to try and keep on schedule. So I was working security like five days a week and then shooting these extra pages for the second edition um, two days a week. Um, but years ago, I was working security um, as like in my early 20s and um, he, he was on my security. He was like, I worked with him in security. And um, <laughs> I just picked him up because he had one of these faces. It just looked like a brick with a moustache. It know? looks like he's been in a few fights. You know, with oh, nose. he's called um, he's called Jawbreaker. That was his <laughs> he, was a, he was a cop. He was a riot, uh, riot cop who um, had him look after all the bikies because we have bikie gangs down here in Australia. That's like our, our big criminal kind of stuff. And he was the one who'd go and break up their parties. Um, <laughs> they'd send him in. And he, um, yeah, Jawbreaker. Jawbreaker. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's perfect. Ah, uh, you nailed it with this guy. Uh, we're looking at Oswald yeah, well, Paul. He just looks. He just looked what I wanted. Like I didn't want to do the penguin aspect with the pointy nose and all that kind of stuff. I just wanted someone who would get that nickname by just trying to dress fancy, you know? Right. <clears throat> and he just suits it, you know. He just great. He has that Capone power to him, you know, that look in his eyes where he doesn't give a shit about anyone except him. Yeah, I, I don't like how many iterations try to lean too much into the the penguin aspect and i think a lot of that comes from the tim burton stuff where he almost was an animal uh he was so yeah. mutated i really prefer the the iterations where he, he's a fucking human being yeah he's, he's a crime boss he's a criminal he's a businessman yeah. he's not a psychopath to me mm -hmm. anyway um that guy's I have to, I think the, yeah, the previous guy who played the Penguin, I don't think he's, he's not longer with us, unfortunately. Uh -huh. So I don't know if he even got to see the book, unfortunately. Oh, damn. Then we have Carmine Falcone, one of the original yeah. uh, crime bosses of, of Gotham. And th this is in the book, this is still in the early, I think the first chapter where you're, you're setting yeah, it's it like up. The first five years. Yeah. You're setting up, you know, what caused the, the masks, you know, the heroes, what caused the, the, the new type of villain. And, and this is, you know, Falcone, he's, he's part of the, uh, one of the original crime families. But I looked at this guy and I was like, yeah, that's a guy that's, uh, exhausted, exhausted. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't know what's happening with the world. He doesn't. And everyone knows that because, you know, COVID, you know, even what's happening in Ukraine at the moment, it all seems so ridiculous. And to him, that's what would happen when people dress up as bats and clowns and stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, this, this used to have honor. I come from a family of, you know, people with honor. We have a code, you know, and he right. just sees that and it's just, he doesn't get it and he's exhausted by it. Right. Now this, we're looking at Arkham Asylum. I went very different with Arkham. I did go different with Arkham. This definitely looks like a place um, that one would be sent to if uh, you were criminally insane. <clears throat> yeah, I just wanted to, I wanted something to feel like a tombstone, you know, but, you know, 
And like in fairness, this photo is at this like as this thick place just got built, so they have no grass or anything. But I kind of like that about it, mm-hmm. and that the workers are going inside, like they're marching to like help essentially. Where was this location at? I have no idea to tell you the truth. I've tried okay. to backtrack it a couple of times, and I think I just get distracted. I will have to look it up because everyone keeps asking me about it. I'm like, man, it's just I have probably. 20, 30,000 vintage images, what I've just collected over the years, I use as inspiration or I right. you know, um, use, you know, in the work. This was from a photo library, what we um, we accessed. And uh, we did a little bit of tweaking to it, but not much. It's pretty much the building, you know, but it just had this perfect vibe. I And, you know, I went from the Gothic look. I didn't want the Gothic look um, for right. Ark and it's been done to death. Right. I wanted this institution where they're like this new exciting science, you know, that's the thing what fuels all these things is because all the ethics get thrown out the window at Arkham. It's run by a crazy, you know, perverted um, warden in the, in Hugo Strange. Right. Um, And he encourages the abuse, but he's doing it from a place of sick perverted pleasure where someone like the scarecrow, he thinks he's helping humans in the long run by really pushing these new science, you know, psycho um, analytical sciences, you know, like psychiatry and whatnot. And, um, and like I said, there's everything is based on something. So I, I, when I, in the way I write, I give you something what you can research yourself in order to find more about this type of stuff I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So I think under the scarecrow and talking about Arkham, I talked about like experiments, like the little Albert experiment, you know, these very, very unethical um, things from history, what they, um, they did at the time because they thought it was, you know, in the benefit of humanity. Like the reason we are also healthy these days compared to the old days is because during World War II and during um, these periods, they tortured so many people like in order to develop the pharmaceutical industry and all that kind of stuff during those periods because they could never do it in a real world and um most people don't know this stuff and i find it fascinating that you know the amount of people got like tortured and killed so we could have you know um the pharmaceuticals what we use these days to jam down our throats and whatnot but essentially History is such a fascinating thing when you really delve into it. And when you combine it with something that you have a passion with, like Batman, all this stuff starts, you know, having a new meaning. So I can just put that, if I showed you that photo with no context, you just go, okay. But then I put Arkham Asylum there, your brain starts going, what's in each <laughs> rooms? Exactly. You know? And that's the, that's the thing about the book. We have context and our context is history. Then we have the Joker. And I mean, handsome to me. Yes. I mean, when I put this on um, the Bat Force Instagram social media, I mean, I think this picture alone drew most of the comments, you know, people talking about, wow, this is really like the most sadistic, evil looking Joker that they've seen um, in a very complimentary way. (laughs) Yeah, well, he's a combination of a few different Jokers. He's look, you know. Um, the flower and the, like the color palette is definitely taken from like, I think a sideshow Joker bust. Um, that suit I got custom made, um, like this, that and two faces suit are all custom. 
Um, they're very expensive suits, but they just, they, you know, they look the treat. The big thing with Joker, we want, again, we want it to make sense for a real person. So you have the makeup rubbing off on the collar and mm. on the tie from when he would tighten it and on his top button as he does the buttons up. So you have makeup rubbing all over his clothes. That's the thing we wanted in there. So no matter how fancy he tries to look, there's always something a little bit like off about him. Right. You know? Um, and I just wanted these fucked up teeth, like because <laughs> dental hygiene was not a big thing back then. You know, dentists weren't common, and they weren't very. You know, you could forge dental licenses so quickly. You know, back then. Um, and then we went with um, I wanted big hair because when he first appeared, he had again that triangle look to his head. So in the book, this is the first time he appears. So he has a bit lot more of that like original joker vibe you know and we wanted to replicate the man who laughs as well that kind of creepiness from the original resource um so yeah it's like everything in the book we take as much reference as what out there what people know of so there's a little bit of hamill in there there's a little bit of the man who laughs um the decrepitness and everything's a little like of the makeup and everything is a bit of ledger and you know joaquin kind of vibes so we just try and make it all work um from all the different um, resources, what we have and references. Very cool. Uh, what else we got, man? We got a lot of stuff. I took a lot of photos. Um, you know, we you talked did, you about took a lot of photos. I did. <laughs> I did. Cause there's so many, I mean, this book is full of just great imagery, great storytelling. And it, it takes everything, you know, from your golden era to your, bronze era to your silver age your animated series even from the new 52 and even you know beyond that and puts it in this world and to me that just makes so much sense i don't know i i said something on my social media where i was like i would love if we had gotten this as the new batman film and the response and it may have been you or one of the other people from Giant Panda King. Oh, I thought this it. was so brilliant. It was like, you know, we see this more as like a streaming TV series. And I was like, that's even better because, I mean, you can tell more of the long story in this yeah. fashion. Like, for me, the <laughs> like Boardwalk Empire is a really nice reference purely because the aesthetics line mm -hmm. up. But you tell multiple stories and it uses real history but it puts some fake characters in there interacting with real, real history, you know? Um, Carnivale is another good reference uh, as far as aesthetically, because uh, again, it's set there and it really shows the changing of the old world to the new world, quite good. Um, if you want to look at references, The Wire, as far as introducing oh, yeah. a new element every season, you know, so it's not just black and white as far as, you know, um, good guys, bad guys. It shows you different aspects of the whole, how it is a self-perpetrating thing. Um, Deadwood, as far as like creating characters who just embody a place. And that's why we call it Gotham. It's not just about Batman. It's about the city, you know? Right. Um, so those kind of shows the ones we really like. And we could see the show, uh, like this version working like that. Because, you know, people have read the book, the Shadow War is what kind of it builds to. You know, and then that would be like your second last season, essentially, would be the Shadow War. And you'd build that and it'd be a whole season, you know, but you'd foreshadow it. You know, and anyone who's seen Deadwood, 
they do really well in there the way they um, kind of foreshadow the Pinkertons because they'll, you know, they'll mention them in the first season. Then the second season, you'll see one of their agents. Right. Then the third season, you'll see all of them, you know, but the way they present them, it's like this build up. It's like this dread is building because you just hear about them for years. And then when you finally, they come, you know what's in store. And that's the same with the League of uh, the League of Assassins in my book, is that you hear about them and they're mentioned in the book at the beginning. So when it finally gets to that, the payoff is huge because the whole army comes to Gotham and a war takes place on the rooftops, essentially. Right. And I think I show that, like, you know, where we have, like, the city is based. We use the photo from the Chicago fires, but it looks like the whole city's engulfed in, like, chaos. Right. Know? And then you also have the political aspect, um, you know, the socioeconomic, you know, aspect of, you know, the, the citizens of Gotham. I mean, this is a book really about the people of Gotham, <clears throat> not mm. so much Batman. You've got people that they're tired of the Batman, you know, they see him as the cause of all the stuff that's, you know, happening to Gotham. Um, yeah, like that's the thing. You're gonna have people on both sides because that's right. how it works. Like the bigger you are, or the point it is, you're gonna have people who support you, the people who don't, and then people are undecided. I want to get into uh, some more of the awesome creative uh, imagery that's in this book. I mean, you actually made a circus flyer for the Flying Graysons. Yes, yeah, so that. That one is uh, based on a real trapeze family from um, like the 1908 or something like that. So it's kind of accurate to that. Mm -hmm. And um, we obviously, we've got good Photoshop skills. So we warp a lot of this stuff and <laughs> adapt it and whatnot. Um, but the thing about this one is like, uh, <laughs> if you look at their circus costumes um, and then you look at um, the costume I put Robin in, the first Robin, he's actually just wearing his circus costume. Yeah. You know, and it's a little nod to the original inspiration for Robin, which was Robin Hood, not Robin the Bird, you know. Hmm. Um, and Errol Flynn was a big character at the time, so they based his look on like the swashbuckling kind of adventurer, you know. Um, that was because that was a big thing. It was a big, really popular Robin Hood with Errol Flynn, Flynn at the time. So that's what comic guys said. Oh, that works in movies. Let's put it in here. Um and I copped a lot of crap again on this costume from a lot of people, like saying, You should be cooler. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> Read it in the context of the book, and it makes sense. Like, yeah, pe people say the same thing as they go on because there's a need, but in the beginning, it's a little bit silly, and that's the whole point because it dip this stakes raise as you go through the book, as like you know. Jason gets killed as Barbara gets paralyzed, stakes get risen, costumes change, you know, and right. you start looking more and more till eventually we get to what everyone kind of knows of what Batman is, you know. But we're trying to acknowledge that over a 20 year period, things develop and change. Right. You have to start somewhere. And a lot of this stuff's presented out of context, you know, when it's not in the book. Like I always say with Batfee, who does the videos um, based on them. Like his stuff, he does. It's based on the book, but it's his take on my what my work. So 
Like it's sometimes he he fills in the gaps his way, but that's part of the fandom. Everyone can fill in the gaps their own way. Um, it's just the way he expresses it. Um, but he, I know with him, he loves um, he loves trying to put the, more of the story in there. Where myself, I'll pull back a little bit and let you guys fill it in. I give you enough, but part of me and part of the book experience is filling in the gaps. You know, and um, I don't know when I collected and when I read comics and everything. That was back in the nineties, like when I first got into it. And you didn't have the luxury of the internet. So I had to go and find this stuff and search for it and buy, spend hundreds of dollars on magazines mm-hmm. to read an article, which might tie in with this other article I read and kind of put it all together that way. And yeah, it sucked because it was so time consuming, but it was great. The journey was great. And that's what I want these books to be is that if you, there's enough in there that if you read this part and this part and this part and you put them together and research those individual things, then you know what I meant by that, you know? But um, it's what you want to get out of it. The more you put into the book and the experience of the book, the more you read it, the more you research about the stuff I talk about, the more you're going to get out of it. Now, I wanted to go back to something you mentioned earlier because uh, I love when people adapt into the stories, things like what would make Batman, you know, theoretically functional as a being and you you mentioned having he has places throughout the city where he has suits you know not only are they quick to put on but he has places throughout the city where where if he's nearby there he can put on a suit and i like when things like that are added there was a recent comic uh that was written by mattson tomlin he's the screenwriter for the new batman movie and he wrote a comic mm-hmm. recently and he did some of that too. And I liked these ideas where he had one thing that Bruce Wayne did uh, undercover was he would show up at construction sites where they were, you know, maybe adding uh, new floors to a, to a skyscraper or something. He would show up there in disguise as like a construction worker who was supposed to be on that job there and just blended in with the guys that were doing the work. But what he was actually doing was installing uh hooks into the foundation of the the building so that he could install zip lines that would help him get you know f- uh, traverse the city quickly so it's really cool when people add things like that that would make it really uh possible for him to do the things that we see him do in stories so how important was that to you to fill in some of these gaps of how a realistic take like this would actually be able to make these things work yeah well <clears throat> I kind of lay it out in like the f- first few chapters where you kind of show you his network, what's slowly forming and that grows and grows and grows. So, you know, you're Lucius Fox. Like, obviously he can't run the Wayne uh, Enterprises as much as he would want to while also running his vigilante operations and presenting himself as Bruce Wayne and, you know, covering up everything else he has to be that takes so much power so lucius fox kind of handles that aspect he um he's gonna get hurt he needs someone who he can trust mm-hmm. so you got leslie who looks after his medical needs you know alfred which uh, covers him and makes sure that you know um he's pres- he's doing all the right things keeping on the schedule all that looks after his things then you get harold who's gonna look who's gonna maintain his equipment and run the bat cave and things like that um you're gonna have ace what's this dog for the like the security dog for the bat cave you know so <laughs> these kind of things i put in there because he can't do it by himself it's ridiculous to think he could 
you know so he has this network and as he brings more and more people in they expand the world you know they and they like you know uh barbara when she first starts is kind of as a gaff you know she's like a folly she's like doing as a bit of a joke it's kind of silly um and then you know um she then as everyone else starts becoming very serious about it you know and by the time she becomes oracle she runs the communications for multiple people on the bat team because as the threats rise those rose um for me and also i love when that happens but i also love putting in like the things he didn't think about like the carry-on effect of his decisions like batman that's what the biggest thing is that he makes the right decision in the moment but he's not aware of the carry-on effect that's going to cause so for example with all this new technology he's investing in he's doing it for his own needs you know so he's investing in new communication things for wayne enterprises new blah 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 new military contracts things like that he's doing it so he can start building his network he needs very selfish reasons but because he's linked to the stock market and all these other things it affects everything so um secretly it like it creates this like arms race this technology arms race with all the companies because they're seeing he, uh, wayne making all these big moves and they need to keep up to keep their shareholders up and blah 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 blah. Mm-hmm. and i don't really put this in the book but that also is one of the contributing factors of overspending and over commitment will cause us to this um the fall of the uh, stock exchange and causes depression so batman is directly linked to that right you know so they're the kind of things i get <clears throat> a kick out of as well where we kind of figure out you know he might not be the main cause but he's one of the contributing factors just not directly, indirectly, because he wanted to be Batman. But he has a lot of power, you know. And it's like it's like when you see like uh, Joe Rogan or someone like that, you know, where they go, "Hey, I'm just, I'm just saying stuff." It's like, yeah, but you've got a lot of power, you know. And that's what Bruce Wayne has as well. Like, I, I just want to fight criminals, but what comes out of that, you know? So I like real world con- consequences to um, very artificial fantasy settings, I guess. <laughs> and you mix in a little bit of fun you throw in batmite yeah uh, my one of my biggest things i like <laughs> doing is trying to make these very silly characters like from the 50s when they had the you know all the the code come in um and try and <clears throat> ground them and make them feel real and um batmite you know he's not a interdimensional imp in my version he's a um, mascot for a newspaper who was trying to um, sell papers based on the Batman craze of the late 20s before it all went bad, essentially. All right. Um, what else? We got we got tons of photos here to look through. Um, you mentioned Barbara. That I like that. Uh, we got Jason Todd. You include all of the Robins. You got Dick, Jason, even Tim Drake. Um, Damien. Damien. Kerry. And we have spoiler in there, but I don't make a Robin because I have a fair few Robins already. Yeah. Here, here we see Tim. And he, you know, his armor is a lot different. You can tell you know, because he's later on how much more advanced it is than the first two Robins. Mm-hmm. And then, and then Damien's is all pretty much leather protected ones. I where did he go? I'm look. I'm looking through my stash here. Oh, here he is. Yeah, there's Damien. 
a very innocent looking Damien, but he looks like he's a stone cold killer. That's what I'm. That's what I wanted. <laughs> I wanted someone who had it in the eyes. Yeah, the mask Damien's really. A big player in um, yeah. a big player in the next two books I'm doing. Okay, well, I'm all in for that. I do like, you know, you included a lot of the uh, the Bat family. Here we have Luke Fox, uh, Batwing. And I thought this was a real interesting choice on how you, you know, brought him in. He's a pilot. Yeah, well, I always, I hated the, um, I always hate the Iron Man, Batman look of him. Like, you know, where he has that powered Batman suit. Mm-hmm. So I was a little bit silly because, um, like, when do we stop? You know what I mean? Like, how can Batman, like, it becomes that unrealistic for me when all these characters become essentially Iron Man and Superman and, you know, versions of Batman. You know what I mean? Right. Like, what's he going to do against Darkseid? <laughs> you know, really, like, for me. And it, it showed in the Snyder Cut. Like, it always felt like Batman was just standing on the edge watching the action. It didn't feel <laughs> yeah. real, you know? And the one thing I ha- hate about movies like that is that um, the difference of him punching a parademon and Aquaman punching a parademon and the Flash punching a parademon, they all should have different strength levels, you know? It's more so in Marvel, like, you know, someone gets punched, the Shatari gets punched by um, freaking Black Widow the same way he gets punched by Thor, you know? And it's just kind of silly. So a big thing for me is I wanted to ground some of these characters. Um, so they actually had a purpose and they just weren't another version of Batman, but the Iron Man version of Batman. So he, and at the time he's a pilot and not just a pilot. He's so those, that plane there, the Batwing, um, that's based on a very particular plane. That's like the prototype to a helicopter. So it could slow down and I think go fly five miles an hour or something. So he'd be there to help Batman get us certain situations to get, um, to, you know, do reconnaissance. Um, and he'd be there to, um, yeah, he could like drop Batman off and all, you know, people off on top of buildings because it would slow down enough that people could jump and, you know, do a creative landing essentially. Um, but yeah, so that was the Batwing, something practical in the city, you know, which was the technology, which was around at the time. Uh, but that only that that kind of uh, design only lasted a few years before they worked out something more practical and started developing the helicopter and whatnot in the fifties. Um, but yeah, we just wanted something more practical for him, and we based him in Europe. That's where he grew up. So there was a reason he didn't grow up in Gotham um, because, and it's like, why did he grow up in Europe? Well, you know, African Americans were accepted a lot more in Europe at the time, and you know, after things like Roswell uh, of um, not Roswell. Is it Roswell? Oh, I'm blanking on the name, but like, you know, and the, um, you know, the uh, Oklahoma, you know, Black Wall Street massacre, like things like that, um, which, you know, were big parts um, of history, which, you know, up till recently, a lot of people didn't know until that Watchmen episode. Um, but the that kind of stuff would kind of go, okay, I'm worried. If, if someone of means and wealth was worried about their, children growing up in this in the country which you know um has so much hatred towards him he would send them overseas you know and luke goes overseas and um oh, i'll tell you one thing what happens to luke all right so <laughs> you'll find this out in the other books but 
Luke is the guy who starts the Blackhawks in World War Two. Okay. Um, and World War Two Blackhawks get started, um, and the Blackhawks is an all African American. Uh, they're gonna be based on the Red Tails essentially. Right. Um, but the um, but yeah, that's, I just want to give him something more interesting. Have his own career, and Batwing is a small part of that. Okay. Also, with this book, you know, you, you, you show the development of Bruce Wayne and his cause for becoming Batman, but also, you know, some of his rogues, uh, particularly Selena Kyle, which you take reference from the Frank Miller year one, where she is kind of a uh, dominatrix and give her a little story. Yeah, well, you know, the whips and the masks and pseudo dominatrix at that point, like S&M, was a lot more innocent than it is now kind of thing. But, um, you know, I never saw her as like someone who would sell her body per se because I feel like she's too strong of a person to let a man dominate her like that. Um, but her being in charge and like using whips and masks and, you know, things like that, I, I could see that kind of happening and kind of lead into the character a little bit more. Um, but yeah, she uses it more to blackmail people. Like, so she, right. um, she still she carries that skin. power. She's always thinking, you know, and right. those photos are actually based on some real photos um, from uh, the 1930s, I think in Australia, where it was a big kind of scandal back then where the, uh, this, the leader of the um, Australian symphony orchestra uh, got caught with photos of him like that, essentially. <laughs> um, him and a woman. So I actually had a reference photo I based those on from the period. So, um, yeah, it's like everything in there is so kind of accurate. Like I've got a reference for everything. Yeah. But yeah, and then she that woman has this like, yeah, she definitely has an art to her. Like she becomes then a professional, like, um, you know, uh, cat burglar after that. And she leans into the Batman persona. You know, she realizes that she has to hide her identity after her mentor gets taken out, you know. And then eventually she will, um, as she gets older, she starts stealing secrets and uses that and starts trading in secrets. So first she starts blackmailing, then she becomes a traditional thief, and then she becomes a thief of information, you know. Um, and that's how she stays in the game as long as she does, you know, because she has very powerful friends and allies who she has secrets on, you know, and that's how she manipulates. She's a lot more smarter. She plays 3D chess. And I find that part of her a little bit more interesting than just a woman who can just do backflips and whatnot. She's right. meant to be Batman's counterpart on almost every level, but she doesn't have the fancy training. Her training comes from the streets and actually being, you know, forced to do it like unlike bruce she wasn't born with money or wealth she had to do it herself i love this image right here it's where she's you know holding her whip in front of her i mean this could be a comic cover right here um do you have any more information about the, the model and the photographer who took this yeah i, I took that one um, okay. <laughs> well, good job. <laughs> uh, my business partner, Mike, and my, myself, we probably shot ninety percent of the photos, and then we had like some photographers coming for you know about ten percent of the book. Um, just on busy days where I have a lot of costumes I have to make because I do all the costumes myself too. Um, hmm. On those days, I have to um, like we're not a big company. There's like two of us 
who run the company and then there's like one or two employees who are casually for me um so it was pretty much two people made this book mostly even though i have a lot of credits at the end um you know some of those people helped for an hour but i have to give them credit you know but craig and i we did the lion's share of this so <clears throat> we we do most of it um and duffy she's the model she has worked with me a number of she's in a few of my other books as well um those books are a little bit different i so i have two other books my first two books were called um wookie rotica volume one and volume two it's a, like a 1970s playboy but based on star wars so we have all the fake ads the articles it's just going to be a comedy as a comedy piece you know right um and she plays uh my twillick in that she's a blue twillick um okay if anyone's ever seen that book, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about because it's one of the most requested images for people who want to buy off me. Um, but yeah, Wookie Rodickers are a comedy book. Um, but if you've got a younger fan base, you'll have to wait till you're a little bit older to get those ones. Um, mm. But yeah, we um, she she started modeling for me years ago, and she just she looks like Catwoman. Like right. she just has that she has that physicality about her. And I suppose for me, when I start casting all these people, it's all in their eyes. If they can tell me who their character is in their eyes just by a look, then I know it's right. And that's the thing. When you look at all these people, look at their eyes and see if you can – that's what you're looking at when you think, oh, they're perfect. It's because they're selling it to you through the eyes. What character am I? Uh, <laughs> definitely one that belongs in Arkham. <laughs> <laughs> this guy, talk about some eyes. We're looking at Mambat here. That's Anthony again. Yeah. Played the Joker. Man, this um, is some awesome costume design. Yeah, we just wanted like more of a body horror aspect to it. Um, like someone who looked like they're in pain from it. You know what I mean? Like right. he's this he's in like mid-transformation. He doesn't have wings. I'm not saying he doesn't eventually get them. Like, look at his like elbows, how they're like warping, like his arms. You know, mm -hmm. they're warping. His fingers are getting longer. Um, people just want everything given it to them straight away. Like everyone goes, oh, give him wings, give him wings. I'm like, yeah, but then you're entering a different territory. Like, you know, this one, you can feel his pain and his emotion of what he's going through. And that's what we wanted in this. You know, it's been most of the villains, if you read up on them, they're all very tragic souls. You know, we, we try and ground them and make, give them, you know, give them some sympathy. But then, you know, we also try and make it grounded by saying, well, there was experiments happening at the time where we were trying to crossbreed with animals. You know, like Russia spent a lot of money on a program to try and breed women with gorillas. What, really? Oh. And that's real history. <laughs> you know, I'm not making that one up. Oh. You also get into one of the most iconic Batman stories with Nightfall and... Uh, Asriel. Well, I had to do Nightfall because that's that's when I was reading comics when I was at high school when that came out. And I remember everyone hating, hating his design so much when it first came out. And it wasn't until later I realized that the comic characters did that on purpose, you know, to really make this character hated, you know. Um, but he was hard to nail. It took me about three attempts to get this one right because really? it yeah. just was such a silly kind of design originally you know like it's so comic booky you know it's so top heavy and ridiculous 
And I was just like, okay, I wanted someone who feels like that they're like the tank version of a Batman, you know? Right. And um, we wanted to bring in like his brainwashing and the system and just really ground it. And, you know, and then another secret society, like between like in the book, I think we've got like six secret societies and about 10 freaking criminal organizations. Comics doesn't matter. The book, it's, it's tough because you, these, they're only pages apart of these storylines. But uh, Nightfall was a big one. And that was like, to me, it's like Batman coming face to face with like what he, what he's created, like the sins of what he's created. And it's after the shadow wall. So, and after like, um, he gets his back broken by Bane. Um, and it kind of comes full circle because in the book he kills Harvey Dent. And that's what brings back uh, Bruce back to stop him and go, okay, this has gone too far. You know, I've got to, I've got to take control of this now. And uh, yeah, I just, I always loved that character, but I always want to do it a little bit more grounded and a little bit more twisted. And having him kill <clears throat> Bruce's best friend from child, like from his youth, kind of um, Bruce saw it as fuck. I've got to, I've got to tie this up we've got to we're going to stop this now it's gone on for too long and i have to break the cycle i love this bat suit oh my art deco helmet man that's so cool i love that do you so, still have that helmet yeah 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 i still got that one i go i think i gave um this bat feed he uh he kind of actually gave us a lot of attention through his videos you gotta say so i gave him the um the nightfall helmet from the book but um this one uh yeah i just love that design i when i was trying to create it i wanted i said it should be a helmet like anytime you my pet peeve in like history historical battle films no one's ever wearing helmets like in game of thrones you always see their pretty faces or in their way in battle <laughs> and if you look at any actual like reenactors or like experts on um fighting they're like shield and helmet almost every soldier would have that as a must because yeah. that's the stuff where he kills you <laughs> like you need your shield and helmet so for me it had to be a helmet moving forward to offer that kind of level of protection for him and um yeah and i just was like what's well, just something that's gonna look fucking cool you know like of the time and an art deco style and make it almost like a Bakelite radio. Like, if you remember, like, Bakelite before plastic, um, yeah. that's what I was kind of going for. Like, new technologies are emerging where they can actually form this stuff and molds are starting to be used around this time to produce things. So we're moving over to things like Bakelite and then soon we'll move to plastic once plastic starts getting invented after World War II. Um, but, yeah, so we just went for something that kind of looked of the period, you know, like, could feel like it was from that like period art deco was you know the height of design yeah and that that leather cape i mean it really gives the aesthetic of like leather wings i mean i thought you nailed it on this i'd love to see more photos of that suit i love it what else we got uh oh we got deathstroke now this is a guy that looks like he'd kick your ass I've always hated Deathstrokes in live action. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, why don't you just cast someone who looks like the character? Don't try and force these actors to put fucking dye in their beards and that. Like, like Joe Medlerlo in that one shot. I'm like, you just like, don't get me wrong. You look cool for a cosplay guy. 
But, yeah, but but I don't believe that uh, a, a mercenary like Deathstroke is spending time bleaching his hair. Yeah, exactly. So I went with the silver silver fox dude. <laughs> you know, someone who went young. You know, and also like I just with this, I wanted something just practical, leather again. Um, and then it's more like he's just had like I always loved uh, my reference for like this is the original David Lynch Dune where uh, Paul gets his personal um, 10 guards and what they do is they just put like red paint on their shoulders <laughs> and that's how they like are separated from all the other Fremen. And I always just thought that was a simple badass way to kind of do that. And that's what I've kind of done here. So that's my reference for that. I love it. And I love this Mr. Freeze. Mr. Freeze is like one of my favorite rogues. Um, well, me too, and that's why I wanted to um, do it properly. And it did take me a few attempts to get it right. Right. That's Even included Anthony again. That's Anthony again. You included uh, his, you know, his ice gun and his hyperbolic chamber that he sleeps in. Didn't have Nora, but you know, that's for book two, right? No, well, I almost shot Nora, but um, like I said, I was gonna have her frozen in like the um, in the tank and everything. Um, but I just ran out of money, like that's what no. I said, man. I, I, I go and work, I make a little bit of money, and then I come and shoot all this stuff. Um, well, you can't have everything, I, you yeah. know. I mean, and plus, yeah, you know. Yes, she would be a big part of Mr. Freeze's story, but I thought, you know, you already gave us, you know, I mean, gosh, over 240 pages of material. I mean, yeah, it's 250. I think it's 250 now. 250? Okay. Is this Anthony too? Yep. Wow. So this is at the very end of the book when I guess Joker's finally been caught um, and. In Arkham Asylum, he's truly unhinged now. He's right. Harley's had to leave him because he was so abusive to her. Oh, we we need to show Harley. Let me get her pulled up. Oh, sorry, I kind of get these out of order. Oh, here we go. I love the design you put for Harley because you know one thing with Harley is I never liked the big, oversized mallet yeah Here you, well, you gave her an axe yeah guy. and i was like that's genius because i mean you know one is lighter she could wield it a lot easier and then probably actually more useful practical and holly queen the axe murderer <laughs> <laughs> and that this that harley funny. uh this Harley looks similar to the original inspiration for Harley's look too, which was uh, Arlene Sorkin, uh, a scene that she appeared in in Days of Our Lives Days that Lives. Paul Dini had seen. Yeah, and that this uh, yep. has similarities to that. Yeah, that was one of the big references. Um, there was also a shot from a film from that period as well. It has that diamond pattern in the tights and mm -hmm. the, this girl has this little beret, which I kind of used as a reference. Um, the way I described Harley um, with, a one, with her look was I wanted the most adorable and scary ex-girlfriend <laughs> you could ever have. <laughs> yeah. 
like you look at her oh she's sweet but there's some crazy behind those eyes <laughs> okay? um and a lot of people like not a lot of people like, i always say a lot of people it's like a couple of people um questioned that i didn't make her a um her a, a psychiatrist in this one um she's i simplified her backstory and turned her into a candy like a um almost like a candy stripe but like an like an orderly kind of helper at the arkham to earn money um and she gets seduced by the joker that way you know she's from this broken home where her father abuses her and all this kind of stuff now with that i did that purely because if you look at history three percent of women would um were doctors in america at that time right and even less was psychiatrists, you know, because that was a that was a new man's kind of science. That was the exciting yeah. science what men did. So it didn't make sense if I was being accurate to the time, make to make her character that. Um, but I felt like we did a good version of her through the book. Like she, she, we in the first book I only had her in there like that once, like the first printing. But I did do some reshoots, and I have her pop up a few more times. Like she gets her kind of comeuppance with towards the end of the book where she. Um, forms her own crew and right. um, then she then we have a nod for her as a suicide squad as well right who is this guy the mad hatter the mad hatter the uh actor um <laughs> man i just found that dude online i hit him <laughs> up i flew him to sydney because he was perfect you know yeah. he just he what is everything i want him to be you know and right. uh, he, he turned up he goes oh do you want me to, i've got I can take this tooth out. Do you want me to? I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> he just keeps getting better. Yeah. So it's funny because I shoot so fast, man. I'm like the fastest shooter you ever see. I shot, you know, I, I get these guys in, I dress them up and I shoot them for like these type of guys. I shoot them for 45 seconds, maybe a minute. And then I go, all right, thanks. Bye. <laughs> yeah, he was on set for like half an hour, you know, if that. Really? Was this a custom suit that you designed as well? No, no, no. We uh, well, I bought some old old stuff and then I just tore it down, broke it down. Oh, okay. Know? Yeah, it's this one was just a bit of um, decorating, like with the suit. It's just like you know, I just had to break it down and you know, rip it apart and make it look dirty and old and whatnot. And with this older stuff, it's easy to do, but you also don't want to fuck up like original vintage clothes. So. Right. It's, I just use, you know, the magic of um, costume design to hide all of it and anything else I can use in Photoshop. It's, it's At the end of the day, it's, it's not like when we make films, these are photos, so it's a lot easier to yeah. manipulate the images. But for us, we we more remove things than add things because we want to keep it real as much as we can. And I, I like yeah, I, can't, the... I can't stress enough how important, uh, how well you do the costumes are because you see so many things. You know, it, it happens a lot in cosplay, and sure, you know, people have... Uh, limited uh budgets with some of that stuff but you see so many photos and things are like well okay yeah i see that's supposed to be a suit that this joker's wearing but it's a, it's not a suit it's a costume and yeah. uh, that's important for the authenticity that all of this stuff it is real clothing and it looks like it and real clothing from the time so no synthetic yeah. stuff you know mm -hmm. and actually making it out of fabrics they have access to and colors what were there because a lot of the modern colors what we use these days weren't around then they didn't have the dye facilities to do it so um you know it's really hard to compare it by today's standards you know and having something yellow for example like the robin capes 
that's that's a that's a pricey investment you know so riddler this guy yeah he really loved doing this photo set i could tell yeah well we he's he's inspirational his look was like this guy kind of has a buster keaton look to him so i really lent into that and this is one of my good friends jamie jamie j cats he's a really interesting guy if you ever want to read up about him his name's j cats or jamie leonardo and uh there's a whole bunch of documentaries out there based on him he's a very interesting dude um, i always recommend everyone going to research who he is the, the performer um but yeah i wanted like more of a you know the classic kind of serial killer vibe um he's more like if you ever saw that show hannibal based on hannibal lecter uh -huh. um kind of like someone like that who you know enjoys the finer things in life but very bored and he does this as stimulation for himself yeah you you gave him a very um creepy backstory which works great in in this context in this time <laughs> like you said he's the well, he's a lawyer that again he's was kind of bored guys yeah yeah, and also I want to do I want to present these characters a little bit differently than probably how you've seen them before. And the Riddler sometimes can be some people if they don't know how you know the essence of that character can present him like a Joker knockoff. Um, and I really want to stay away from that. So I went with someone a lot older than my version of the Joker, um, and someone who is kind of based on the idea of like doing the perfect crime and um i think batfeet goes into it a little bit more because i give him a lot of my references and notes as far as you know so he can see what i was researching at the time but like uh leo and leopold the you know those guys who murdered try to pull the perfect murder at college and they thought they were geniuses and they're very smart guys but they thought they were way smarter than they were and um i just thought what if they succeeded you know and then there's obviously what matt reeves is doing one of the big references was the zodiac killer you know right um and whatnot so um you know we're all drinking from the same uh, uh fountain essentially when it comes to that um but yeah my version i just want to make a little bit older use a little bit more refined he had to be smarter than more physical um and like he first killed when he was at college so he that outfit it might look like it's um appropriate for the time but it's a little bit older than the time i've presented it in so that striped jacket is more of a uh university or college jacket um whether like the ivy league colleges had and that kind of cane hat um was a little bit earlier as well like the motor hat so he's kind of his outfit comes out of when he first killed someone which was when he was at uh, college um okay. and so he wears that outfit more like a ceremonial thing like that's his that's his routine when he kills somebody um and he's done that every time so yeah i just want to give some story to even the like the costumes now you'll never read any of that in the book but that's what i had to come up with in my head in order to make it um make it sense for me i love learning about that about the whole creative process i mean because now when i go back and like you said before you can go back to this book time after time and always find something new. You put in plenty of Easter eggs throughout the book and, and nods to various stories. I'm trying to find um, one thing that I know you hit an Easter okay, egg I, in. I'll give this example. <clears throat> Black Canary is not in the book. But she is. But she is. Now, 
this is Bruce Wayne's belongings left behind when he was, you know, out and about in the world, left behind with the League of Assassins. Yeah, Who's he had in... to leave them quick, so he left all his belongings there. And I got to look at Damien gets to know his father from stories yeah. and those belongings. I keep looking at that amulet with that picture of the woman and was looking through the book. Can you mm -hmm. tell me who that is? Yep, that's um that's uh what's her name? Uh I blinked on her name. Mask of the Phantasm. What's her name? Andrea uh, Beaumont. Helen? Andrea yeah, Beaumont. Andrea. Andrea. Oh, Andrea. Okay. Andrea. So that's Andrea. So I got a photo of the model from when she was younger and put that in there. Perfect. Yeah, you know, I was going to mention that too. Yeah, yeah, there it is. Yeah. And I, <laughs> and I like in like that other people, picture too, uh, there was uh, the, the, you know, the Master Zorro, uh, what he was reading at the time, which if you know those, like Scarlet Pimpernel was really the first person to do the rich, rich person with an outer ego with a mask. Right. Um, and then, yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff lived in there. Like even the map, if you look at the map, you can't really see it that clearly, but there's stuff in there as well. I liked the uh, the Zatara poster there too. So that's a, mm -hmm. a Zatana Easter egg. Yeah, well, that's part of his training. He learned, he learned how to be an escape artist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I think um, that can, that's a good stopping point and, and, we can wrap this up because we can talk about this book, you know, for hours. There's so much content and there's so many, you know, Easter eggs and so much story in Gotham 1919 to 1939. I mean, we could talk about this forever. And the good thing is you can actually, listener, get a copy for yourself. Um, where can they get that? Only one place, giantpandaking.com. That's it. Um, so sold through my website. We have about, I think we have about 500 or 400 copies left um, of this print run. Uh, this print run won't be done again probably until after the next two books. So the next two books, what we're doing is Theramscura 1933 to 1963, which is Wonder Woman's story. Oh, wow. And we finish off the stories with Metropolis 1925 to 1945. Now these stories are parallel stories and sequels. They'll fill in gaps. They'll tell the stories from a different perspective. Um, the effects of one book will carry on to the next book. Some of the stuff you see in, in Gotham, what's not explained, will be explained in other books. For example, the Suicide Squad mission, what we show a photo of at the end of Gotham, that will be explained what that mission is in Metropolis, for example. Um, Very cool. And things like that. So they're all interconnected, the books. Um, I'll be presenting, though, we'll be probably printing printing 5,000 copies each of those two books, but that'll be it. Um, and then we'll probably do one more print run of Gotham um, after those, um, with about, you know, a couple of thousand, and then that'll be it. And then we shut down um, our store, um, and we won't be printing anymore. Um, we'll also be um, scrubbing it from the internet as much as we can. Um, we want this to become a myth. We want this to be for the people who did the work, got it. Um, then we're going to kill it. And it's just going to live on in the way people talk about it. And that's the way we always designed it to be something. What's not just, you know, you have to put in the work if you want to be part of it. That's part right. of the journey. You don't wow. just get it because it exists. Very cool. So that's www.giantpandaking.com. 
Now you also, on that link, have a link for U.S. and Canada customers that also want to uh, get a copy yeah, of that so as well. For North America, make sure you look at the top. It says, do you want to buy from the U.S. store? And that will just change the shipping cost only because we ha- we ship out of uh, L.A. We have a whole bunch of books in a warehouse there, but we also ship out of Australia. So depending on where you are, it might be cheaper to ship. For, obviously, if you're in North America, ship from the U.S., but if you're in the rest of the world, like obviously Asia or anywhere close to Australia, it's going to be cheaper to go through us. But if you're from Europe, maybe just check which is the cheaper option for you. Very cool. Now, we can find you on Instagram at Giant Panda King. Just everyone, please go follow Giant Panda King because coming up, we're actually going to be doing a giveaway of this book. So you need to follow Giant Panda King. That's one of the first priorities that you need to do. Um, can't stress that enough. Also, you know, go look at their other products that they have. The the Wookiee Erotica book. I, I flipped through, you know, the online photos. Oh, I bet you did. <laughs> <laughs> and then also, I mean, there's some awesome shirts on, on your website as well. Um, yeah. Well, so we've got four books coming out over the next two years, and then that's kind of it for our books. We're moving solely mostly over the film and a few other things. Um, but we've got, yeah, the two books to finish off this, se- uh, this series. Then we've got a Ghostbusters book coming out called The Last Station, which is our kind of sequel to the first two films. Um, very different. Again, like, then got, I, I enjoyed Afterlife for what it was, but Afterlife for me, like, I could have replaced the Ecto-1 with a phone booth or a DeLorean or whatever. <laughs> it's just interchangeable nostalgia, which I'm all for. I enjoyed it, liked it. But for me, a Ghostbusters book is about being in a city. It's about being a team. It's about calling yeah. yourself actually a Ghostbuster. Um, if we're, uh, so we're doing our own version of Ghostbusters called The Last Station. It's set in Detroit. Um, and then we've got um, oh, The Life of Planet of the Apes um, coming out. So we're do, that's a photo book, um, and that's where creating all the classic covers of Life and Time magazine over the years, but with um, the original Planet of the Apes makeup for all the people. Very cool. A lot, a lot of stuff to be excited about coming up. So cool follow Giant Panda King and also check out giantpandaking.com. All right. Um, well, I think that's going to do it for us here at Bat Force Radio. Russell, thank you so much for coming on. No, yeah, thanks pleasure. for having us. Anytime I get to talk about my myself, it's a good day. <laughs> <laughs> and right, and it's, it's not that. just and, um, it's just not the same when you're talking to yourself cool. about yourself. Yeah. Yeah, boot yourself exactly. <laughs> hey now i'll tell you what i'll tell you what. all right well thank you very much and uh bat force out